This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, a man born to imprisoned victims of a racist police vendetta recounts his life in the MOVE organization. And today's black activists could learn something from the Maroons who built communities of freedom outside the reach of the slave master. But first, black nationalism is a potent political force with studies showing that about half of black Americans see themselves as a nation within a nation. Edward Onachi teaches history at Ursinus College and has written a book titled Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. Onachi says there have been calls for a separate black nation for generations. Yeah, there have been a number of different currents. One of the things that I talk about in my book, Free the Land, is how groups like the African Blood Brotherhood, the Communist Party of the United States of America, how they attracted working class black people, people such as Queen Mother Audley Moore, who were interested in their broader political ideas, but we're really interested in the ideas of black self-determination and how people like Queen Mother Moore held on to these ideas even after the Communist Party started to abandon the concept of self-determination for you know what they call the Black Belt Nation. And they took these ideas and put energy from them into some of their other efforts. So if we fast forward from the 1920s and 1930s up to the 1950s and 60s, Queen Mother Moore was said to have been one of the people who was speaking with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X about these ideas, as were people like John Henry Clark. And they're credited with being the impetus behind the Nation of Islam taking up this idea in a substantive way. And Anybody who's familiar with Malcolm X knows that he did talk about revolution. He talked about revolution being focused on land, and that inspired a whole new generation of activists who eventually became the folks who participated in the New African Independence Movement and got that movement off the ground in 1968. Well, tell us about what happened in 1968 and thereafter with that movement. I'll back up just a little bit. Malcolm X gave a number of speeches dealing with revolution and, and their focus on land. One of these speeches was called The Message to the Grassroots, which he gave in November 1963 in Detroit. That meeting was partially organized by Gaidi Obadeli, who was then known as Milton Henry, and his brothers, one of them being Richard Henry, who later became Imari Obadeli, was in the crowd. And Upon hearing the speech, it kind of changed how they thought about their participation in the civil rights movement, because up to that point, they were integrationists, 
even though I call them integrationists with a black nationalist tendency. And part of the reason why they started to rethink their involvement in the civil rights movement is because Milton Henry, the older brother, he was actually an elected official in Pontiac, Michigan. And he was the only black member of the Pontiac City Council. He was unable to make any decisions that he thought had any benefit to black people. He was able to contrast his experience, what he saw his friends from Lincoln University who were from Ghana, he was able to contrast his experience with their experience. They were also in positions of political authority in Ghana, but unlike him, when they made decisions, when they had ideas, they were able to carry them forward. So that combination of hearing people like Malcolm X talk about land and revolution, but also just focusing on the actual lived experiences and the lessons learned from, from things that didn't work out so well, it drove people like the Henry brothers to help form what they called the Black Government Convention in 1968. And they weren't alone. I had already mentioned Queen Mother Adi Moore. She was instrumental in all of this. A number of people from the Revolutionary Action Movement were participating. And this group of people, they were able to pull hundreds of Black nationalists from all across the country into this convention. And at that convention, they proposed that it was in Black people's best interest to begin pursuing self-determination. They had already written up what they called their Declaration of Independence. They let people debate the Declaration, and they decided to support it. Over 100 people, with Queen Mother Adi Moore being the first among them, signed this Declaration of Independence. And it's called a Declaration of Independence, but I'd always remind people that it wasn't the type of thing where they would say, you know what, we are now officially independent. We are the Republic of New Africa. No, the Declaration of Independence was supposed to be an impetus for people to begin pursuing self-determination through international law. More specifically, they wanted to organize a UN monitored plebiscite through which black people in the U.S. could determine their fate. And so that was the main thing that came out of that 1968 conference a number of other important conversations are also taking place, including how to support black revolutionaries who have been captured by the U.S. government, right? They called them political prisoners and prisoners of war. They also talked about the creation of a new nation. Then you're also talking about the creation of new people. And they talked about what that would look like. So they had to address things such as sexism amongst black folks. They had to talk about what the spirituality would be like, what the economy would be like. So those were just a few of the conversations that took place at that convention and that continued, or I should say continue to be central to the discussions that people have moving forward. That's right. And then some of these activists actually went to the Deep South, where the mm-hmm. Black nation would be centered. And there they confronted white power. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had mentioned Milton and Richard Henry. By the mid-1960s, they started going by Gaidi and Imari Obadeli, Gaidi being Milton, Imari being Richard. They had some disagreements about strategy. And Gaidi, he favored staying wherever Black people were and continuing to organize there, whereas Imari Obadeli he favored a plan that would take as many black people as possible in the five states, which I haven't mentioned yet, the five states being Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia. 
the people would start to move there and they'd participate in a plan that would basically help them legally and slowly take over various aspects of the government. And so Mario Bedelli went south first to Louisiana in 1970. He ended up in Jackson, Mississippi later that year. And that has been the location of the headquarters for the provisional government of the Republic of Africa pretty much since then. Even though they, there are definitely people in places like Atlanta and other cities throughout the South and, and across the nation that have been participating in the movement since then. But back to something that you just said a moment ago, yeah, they had to confront the forces of white supremacy. So, I mean, of course, from the beginning, they were confronting the forces of white supremacy. When they were in Detroit, New Africans in New York, wherever they were, they were confronting the forces of white supremacy, or I should say the forces of white supremacy were taking the fight to them, right? But once they got to Mississippi, the forces led to an important shootout. Uh, and, and actually, before I even get there, in Detroit, there was, in 1969, there was a violent interaction between New Africans and the police. A lot of us called the New Bethel Incident. And the short version of that story is that they were celebrating the first anniversary of the founding of the movement. Toward the end, a couple of police officers approached New Bethel Baptist Church, Aretha Franklin's father, C.L. Franklin, it was his church. Upon approaching, something happened, gunfire erupted, one police officer was killed, another was injured, and when the backup arrived, they unleashed a barrage of bullets on the church and arrested something like 143 people. So that's what I call in the book, the, the New Bethel incident. Some people call it the battle at New Bethel. Other people simply call it a police shoot-in because the majority of the gunfire went into the church and not out of it. And so that was one situation where they had a very violent confrontation with the forces of white supremacy. But once they got to Jackson, Mississippi, they had to deal with police, they had to deal with the media. And of course, again, this is a nationwide phenomenon where the media is trying to paint them in a way that they don't think is accurate. And they had to deal with the Ku Klux Klan that had openly organized to kick them out of the area. Eventually, that led to another violent confrontation, this time being August 18, 1971, a pre-dawn raid on two different properties that New Africans had habited. And it led to the death of another agent of the state, the injury of a couple others, and the arrest of 11 New Africans. And the interesting thing about that is that the raid was set off on the pretense that there was a fugitive from the law who was at one of these houses. And I study Quintel for a lot of us, a study, government repression, it, it becomes a good lesson for us because they actually knew about this guy. He started in Milwaukee and they basically followed him. They knew every step he was making. They followed him from New Milwaukee to Jackson, Mississippi, and they knew that two days before the raid, he had already departed. He actually got kicked out by the two Africans in Jackson because he was such a problem. He got kicked out a couple of days before, had already departed, yet they still had this raid knowing that he wasn't there. Right. And so the way you frame the question, you, you talked about confronting the forces of white supremacy. That is one of the most blatant examples of how these forces of white supremacy are organized to prevent any type of rebellion from historically oppressed peoples. 
especially uh, black, brown, and indigenous people in this country. And it's something that I remind people when we talk about the, the shootings of people like Breonna Taylor, there's some similarities there. Of course, it's not exactly the same, but there's some similarities there. And we can use these different examples to understand the patterns of the state and how white supremacy tries to protect itself at the expense of black, brown, and indigenous peoples. The political administration of Jackson, Mississippi today owes its lineage to the new African independence movement. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. The current mayor is Chokwe Antar Lumumba. He's the son, and and I should say his sister, Rukia Lumumba, is also heavily involved with that administration, from what I understand. And so they're the children of Chokwe Lumumba. He joined the New African Independence Movement, first through the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa in 1969. He became a uh, part of the leadership very quickly because of his dedication and because of his skills. He was already had planned to become a lawyer, had finished undergrad and was beginning to think about law school. So he was able to play some instrumental roles in the leadership within the provisional government. He eventually moved with his wife and their children to Jackson, Mississippi. And as part of his own political evolution, he also helped create the New African People's Association and became the first chairperson of that organization. And so being in Jackson, Mississippi, he he was a lawyer. He was a revolutionary black nationalist, an activist involved with his church, involved with youth sports activities, you know, and, and it's not just him, of course, it's his whole family. His wife also was doing a lot of great work, from what I understand. He eventually was asked by NAPO's mass association called the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement to run for political office. And he ran for mayor. He didn't live long enough to really be in that office for very long, but his son ran and eventually was successful obtaining that that same position that his father had held. The Black political scientist Michael Dawson conducted an extensive survey of Black public opinion back in 1994, and Mm -hmm. he found that although only 9% of Blacks wanted to politically separate from the United States, 51%, a majority, did consider Black people to be a nation within a nation in the U.S. Yeah, I'm... I'm familiar with Dawson's work and that study in particular. I don't know if anyone has updated that survey because I would love to know what the numbers are now, just out of personal curiosity and because I do think I see some patterns. But yeah, even though Black people overwhelmingly say that they're interested in integration to some degree, they vote Democrat and do things that conform to mainstream politics, I mean, I think that... Most African-Americans in this country whose families have been here for at least a couple of generations, they understand the nuance that is there. So even as people promote very mainstream political values, there's also a deep interest in self-determination to varying degrees, whether it be controlling one's own schools, whether it be just having some physical autonomy so that folks can live you know, amongst themselves and kind of control what goes on in their neighborhoods. But we're also seeing, I think, some more precise and potentially 
more powerful expressions of this start to think about the cause for defunding the police. When we see the revival of mutual aid efforts that have come up, the outbreak of COVID here in this country, and really the more people see what both the Republican and Democrat parties are doing, but especially, I guess, at this current moment, the Republican parties, I've heard people, and this is anecdotal, of course, I've heard people, when they hear about my research, instead of saying, oh, that's stupid, as people would tell me five years ago, 10 years ago, people actually have a lot more interest than they did when I first started the research. And so I would love to see that study updated. I am just curious to know if, that 9% has grown at all, and with 51%, how the expressions of the ideas about autonomy, self-reliance, and, and self-determination have evolved. Yes, I agree with you. I haven't seen any recent surveys, but certainly I hear the term self-determination used with much more frequency than at any time mm-hmm. since a long time ago. Yeah, and, and I I would say that we're not the only ones, just, again, anecdotally, people who I've spoken with, especially people who are interested in self-determination in terms of the actual ability of African-Americans to determine where to place their consent of citizenship. Those folks have been seeing some different conversation as well. So it's, it's definitely an interesting moment. Yes, a at least previously dominant political tendency in Black America always put forward a narrative in which Black Americans from 1776 on have simply been trying to become full citizens of this country. And that was the political project. But of course, that has not been the political project of all Black folks in this country. Yeah. And again, even amongst the ones who have put those ideas and who have worked on them, I do think that we owe it to them to have a more nuanced analysis because what that means in any particular moment might change and it might look different from what some of our historians have have made it seem. And so one of the examples that I like to give is Dr. Martin Luther King, who everybody's quoting for whatever political purposes they have right now, yes, he was fighting for integration. Yes, he was fighting for equality. But he wasn't just trying to have Black people, quote-unquote, assimilate into mainstream society. He understood where the resources were, how power is distributed, and how U.S. domestic and foreign policy operated. And so at least in my reading of King, the things that he said that sound maybe assimilationist or or liberal and all those things, and I'm not trying to say he wasn't liberal or that he didn't believe in any type of assimilation at all, but I just think that it requires a more nuanced analysis. We can't pigeonhole people into neat categories just because they make certain claims about things like integration or for those who believe in this assimilation. On the other hand, you know, Yeah, there's always been a good number of people who have not wanted integration. You know, they want equality, they want access to resources. But what that looks like, again, is going to be very varied. Some people have always, there's always been a portion of African peoples who have wanted to get away from the control of the U.S. state and from white citizens in their areas so that they could just do their own thing and do it safely. 
without interference. And I know that a lot of studies have minimized that tendency and have tried to say that it is only matters in these certain eras, right? So they'll point to the Garvey era, they'll point to the Black Power era. But the ideas themselves, just like the more liberal ideas and more integrationist ideas, they're just way too complex to minimize them in the ways that people have, in my humble opinion, of course. And I think that what my research does is help people understand that a little bit more. One of the other things that I hope my book does is help people understand how struggles for reparations have evolved over time. People will talk about Queen Mother Ali more. I mean, we can't ignore her. She's essential and central to this conversation about reparations. But oftentimes, people won't really talk, especially not in detail, about the revolutionary nationalists who were working on reparations and who at least made some mention about it in their various platforms. And so what I'm thinking about right now is the Black Panther Party. They did talk about in their 10-point platform the need for reparations and a UN monitor plebiscite, by the way, in point number 10. But people don't really explore what that meant for the Black Panther Party. What I've seen in the scholarship is that people will talk about James Foreman, and rightfully so, and they might mention Gaidi Obadeli, maybe. But once we start to understand what the New African Independence Movement was and, and how it's contributed to modern-day Black politics, we see that they actually helped bring a bunch of different people together who were interested in reparations. And they helped put ideas on the table that we continue to struggle with. And so beginning in 1970, they published what they called the Anti-Depression Program. And essentially what this program was, was a way for New African Independence Movement and the United States government to begin opening negotiations about what is the proper form of reparations, how would it be given to the people who deserve it, why is it important, and all these types of things. And because they came up with this program, they had a bunch of key ideas about citizenship, about the 14th Amendment. Can Black people in this country actually call themselves American citizens, or are they, as New Africans have been saying, quote-unquote, paper citizens? People who, on paper, because the 14th Amendment forced this designation onto them instead of offering it to them, made them citizens in name, but didn't even give them the protections that were also supposed to be guaranteed under the 14th Amendment, and instead maintained a, a system of oppression and held this, what they called the Black Nation, captive for all these years, right? That's written into their reparations plans. And so what I do is I trace the ideas from the early 70s through the creation of NCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, and I talk about and demonstrate how their basic platform that they came up with in the 1970s was central to the founding of NCOBRA and how the people themselves, people like Imario Bedelli, people like Chokwe Lumumba and Akichi Taifa and other RNA leaders, how they've been involved since then and held important positions within that coalition in particular. And so fast forwarding a little bit, now people are talking about reparations. It was popular in Democratic primary for people like Cory Booker and whoever else to talk about, yeah, I believe in reparations. What they said had nothing to do with what revolutionary black nationalists 
had put on the table, but the fact that they were forced to address it was in part due to what people like the New Africans from the 70s and on had kept on the table for African-Americans politically. And so that's just one of the places where I think they deserve a little bit of recognition. And once we start to study that aspect of the history, it helps us understand how vital this effort for reparations has been. And it's not just some fringe idea. No, it comes from really long roots. And at least since the 1970s, the language that people have been using continues to be with us. That was author and professor of history, Edward Onachi. Mike Africa was born in a Pennsylvania prison, a captive of the long Philadelphia police vendetta against the MOVE organization in 1978. After four decades behind bars, all of the surviving MOVE members are now free, as Mike Africa explains. The MOVE organization was assaulted by police. We were in our home, my mother, my father, and other members of the group. When the police came, they arrested the members in the organization, and my parents were two of the members that were arrested. And at the time, my mom was eight months pregnant, almost eight months pregnant with me. So being that our religion is natural law, we, the move women, generally have their babies at home. And my mother had, had a baby at home a couple of years earlier, so she was capable and aware of how by following her instincts and understanding that that was a natural process that would conduct itself. So she had me actually in a jail cell after the confrontation. Yes, in fact, we read in an article uh, that your mother didn't even want to let the jail guards know that she was about to give birth. Right, yeah, so she wanted to, to make sure that it was done secretly so that she could, so that she didn't want the, the, the guards to try to force her to go to the hospital and, and do that in the hospital. She didn't want the medical all of the doctors trying to do the medical exams or procedures that they do on babies that kind of desensitizes them and, and or interrupt the bond between the mother and the child. So she did it in secret. So your mother and father became members of what became called the Move Nine. That is the huge portion of the Move organization that was thrown into prison after that 1978 confrontation with the police. Now, all of those who have survived prison are out, although some never made it out of the prison. That's right. Merle Africa died in prison on March 13, 1998, and Phil Africa died in prison on January 10, 2015. Yeah, so most of them did make it out, but those two unfortunately did not. And of those who remained outside, they were visited by another crime and atrocity just seven years later in 1985. Correct. When people were arrested, the members of the organization that were still on the street were protesting for the MOVE prisoners' release. And the protests intensified when MOVE people put a bullhorn on the, on the outside of our house and demanded to the community and to city officials over that loudspeaker. And that intensified and escalated to the point where the city officials got involved. And even though they admitted that they believed that the MOVE now were innocent, they still reacted by sending the police to our house to, to shut us down. 
es- incidents escalated to the point where the police came to Moose house and flew a helicopter over our house and dropped a bomb on our house. And the bomb sparked a fire and the fire burned and the, and the police commissioner and the fire commissioner ordered their men to let the fire burn. As the move members tried to escape the burning house, they were shot and they were shot at and or shot by police and thrown back into the fire. 11 members of the organization perished. One member of the organization, Ramon Africa, was the lone adult survivor. She was arrested and put in prison for seven years, and she was charged with arson and riot. And that massacre of MOVE, the second huge assault on the organization, was overseen by the city's black mayor, Wilson Good. That's right. The Philadelphia's first black mayor was Wilson Good. He was elected into office by black Philadelphia, who was intent on stopping Frank Rizzo. The people in the city had seen the atrocities and the racism of the white mayor, Frank Rizzo, the brutality of Frank Rizzo. And they were so desperate to get out from under that regime that rather than sit by and watch Rizzo become the mayor again for the third time, they were desperate. And so they picked Wilson Good to be their candidate. And he was elected in and it was on his watch. But it was Rizzo's cops that did the shooting and the bombing and all of that. But it was also Wilson Good's picks of the police commissioner who was a war veteran uh, and a general who organized the plan with the bombing and all of that. So the two worked hand in hand. It doesn't matter the face that you put on the devil. The devil is still the devil. And in this case, Wilson Good was the face, is the face of that atrocity. And he participated in that. But the devil is the system that is the killer that's killing black people across this country. You know, like George Floyd, like Breonna Taylor, like Rayshard Brooks, like Jamar Arbery. It doesn't matter the color, it doesn't matter the face. The system is the system. And unless it's dismantled, if you put a black person there, a white person there, a Spanish person, we're all going to be still faced with the same oppression. So your parents were in prison for all of your youth, but you were raised by a larger extended family. Tell us about your experience in growing up in MOVE. <laughs> well, hold on. We got to back up a little bit. <laughs> I'm 41. I'm still young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, my experience growing up in MOVE, the members of the organization, I was around most of the members growing up. And even the ones that were in prison, I still maintained a very close connection to them. I visited them regularly throughout the times that I was available. And probably every member, every member that was in the prison uh, of the Move 9 and Mumia too, I regularly visit throughout the years. My life growing up in Move was a very good sense of, uh, I had a lot of learning. There was a lot of learning involved. There's a lot of getting educated about the way things really are in the world and how dangerous the system really is and the things that we need to do. There was a lot of training to learn and understand how to fight it and strategize. And we're seeing some of that strategy paying off now because 
without the work that we've done and, and, the, and the alignments that I've made with lawyers and some politicians that were willing to support the move now would still be in prison today. So, and those strategies are being extended to other prisoners that we actually hope to get out of prison too. Growing up and move has been very insightful, very happy times. The happiest times of my life probably are happening now, but I did have definitely had a lot of happy, fun times growing up and move throughout my life. And what about the response of the larger Black Philadelphia community? Have you, over time, seen any changes or evolution in the general Black Philadelphia acceptance of and response to MOVE and its message? For sure. So in the 80s, I would say that the organization's response from Philadelphia, period, was mixed. From Black Philadelphia, Black Philadelphia is also mixed because there's different classes and class racism is a real thing, right? Class oppression is a real thing. The middle class or upper class black people in the city of Philadelphia were the ones that typically did not respond to move in any kind of like positive way. Usually the people that we found a lot of solidarity with were the poor black people who we were in the community with assisting them with their needs and you know, helping their kids, you know, eat healthy and exercise and stay away from drugs and gangs and, and things like that. So, but the middle class black people, the upper class, they were the ones that were usually against us. They would say things like, we understand what you're saying and we agree with certain things you're saying, but that's not the way to do it. You're doing it, you're too radical. You're, you need to comb your hair. You need to dress nicer, you know, things like that. It's kind of like they were trying to push us to be more like Martin Luther King and less like Bob Marley, you know, more like Malcolm X in terms of dress and less like the guerrilla warfare brothers and sisters hanging out in the woods while they're practicing their strategies in, in Cuba or something. They wanted us to like comb our hair, take the dreadlocks out and wear a suit. And we were saying like, we need a radical change and trying to approach it from this sort of tame mentality. That's not going to get us where we're trying to go. And not saying that there is not a place for the people that dress up in suits and speak principle and speak truth. But at that, but for MOVE at that time, especially, we were just not those people. But um, the climate has changed a lot now. In the organization now, I think it's probably pretty much exactly the opposite. Back in the day, we might have gotten 20 or 25 percent support and 75 or 80 percent just not supporting us at all versus the way it is now where it's probably 75 or 80 or even more than that that sympathetic and understand the stance that we took and why we took such a hard stand because of the environmental pollution the animal cruelty the people that are being locked up in prisons unjustly the, the time that they're being given in prison to serve out punishments that people white people who may have committed the same offense or even worse got less than half the time or got no time at all they can see the disparity. So this is kind of like vindication for us. For most of MOVE's existence, the organization has of necessity been consumed with the struggle to get their members out of prison. Now that all the surviving members are out of prison, what's in the works for MOVE and for you personally? For me personally, my mission is to free Mumia. That's my number one goal. 
do whatever is necessary to get that brother out of prison so that he can be with his family the way that my father is with his family now. My mission is to put out as much information as possible. Currently, we're working on a couple of projects that would bring about more awareness to the people in the city of Philadelphia to learn more about his case so that, you know, they can be aware of it. This is like Nelson Mandela in South Africa right now. And so the, the importance of Mumia being free can be best seen by the example of the killings of George Floyd and the other brothers and sisters that's been murdered by police. We need Mumia free because that will be justice and we're not getting justice. We need freedom. We need justice. We need equality. And Mumia represents those things. And for him to be released because he is innocent, that would be a step in the right direction for the country. The thing that needs to be understood is that police lives are not more important than civilian lives. And the sooner people understand that, the sooner they'll take those guns off those police hips. And the sooner they take those guns off those police hips, the sooner they will be beginning to even the playing field. I'm working on a project right now called Children of Revolution. And as the child of two revolutionaries and Uncle Chuck was in prison, all three members um, of the Move Nine, I've been trying to get with other children whose parents are revolutionaries too, trying to get these stories out through media, through film, because I know a lot of people, they watch television, they watch these shows, and it's important to get out, get this kind of information out as much as possible so that people recognize the importance of equality. Fairness and equality are all we're asking for. That's all we need. And you see all these politicians that are now coming out and saying that they were wrong about things and they didn't understand certain things. And the police are kneeling with protesters and all of that. And they're apologizing. What I will say is apology without action is meaningless. If you want to apologize to people for their suffering, then apply that to the people that you have the ability to apply that to. If you're going to take a Rizzo statue down because you recognize that he was racist and fascist and people suffered because of him, well, then Mumia is one of the people that's in prison because of him. Free Mumia. That was Mike Africa of the MOVE organization in Philadelphia. In North and South America and the Caribbean, there is a long history of escaped enslaved people establishing their own communities in far-off swamps and mountains. Willie Jamal Wright is a professor of geography and Africana studies at Rutgers University. Wright wrote an article titled, The Morphology of Marinage, which explores the history of the people we call Maroon. Maroon were those enslaved Africans who, I'll say, stole away from the plantation. In the literature on Maroons, it's broken up into petit marinage and grand marinage. So these are French terms, petit marinage, meaning maybe you stole away from the plantation a while to go visit a loved one that was on another plantation, but you didn't have like license and sanction to do that move, to make that move. And grand marinage, meaning like I'm leaving, I'm taking my wife and our children and we're going out into the woods, we're going out into the swamps with the intent of never coming back, right? With the intent of creating a new life, a new community for ourselves, away from the purview of the plantation. Most people think of being marooned or marinage as a perilous life, but you describe it as a landscape of possibilities. Right. I can only 
kind of imagine that our ancestors, as they were leaving these plantations with the intent of creating some kind of form of liberation, some kind of form of freedom, whether it was in the swamps or in wooded areas in mountains, right, that I'm sure was not ideal conditions. But what I'm trying to suggest is that the idea to leave a plantation to, to try to create a self-determined life in less than ideal conditions, and particularly I'm thinking about landscapes that aren't being thought of as having any kind of exchange value, right? That, that, is, that there's actually something that we can learn from that in the present. So the plantation was considered this site, it was this landscape and this site of exchange value in which included our ancestors, our African ancestors. And, but in much of the literature on marinage, there's like tacit reference to the dismal swamp, right? Or these rugged woods, right? And these are places that capital and capitalists had not seen value, right? They hadn't seen the potential to extract exchange value out of these locations, but our ancestors saw use value. And so I'm wanting to pull that political optic or that spatial imaginary that our ancestors had in the past to think about how can we apply that in our urban communities in the present? How can we apply that spatial imaginary in rural communities in the present to create more self-determined uh, lives for ourselves? And the greatest use value was, of course, that the long arm of the owner didn't reach there. Right, exactly. So in trying to respatialize and kind of extend the temporality of, of marinage or maroon communities, I look to other parts in the world. So I look to northern India, southern China, and the way in which the Himalayan mountains, the rugged area of the Himalayan mountains was used by indigenous communities in that region, right, to kind of stave off incorporation into, say, the People's Republic of China or the Indian state. I look to the Viet Cong, the way in which the Viet Cong used tunnels to kind of protect themselves and create new life ways, right, understanding that tunnels aren't the most ideal place to live in, but there's a certain kind of spatial imaginary associated with thinking that I'm so committed to my self-determination, I'm so committed to liberation that I'm willing to create a life in this kind of region or this area that doesn't have value from the kind of traditional mindset. I see you quote Herbert Apfecker, the famed Marxist historian who referred to Maroons as Robin Hoods. Right. He spoke of them as we should all speak of uh, Maroons and Marinage in a positive, affirming light. Right. That these were individuals who not only, in a sense, stole themselves from like enslavement, right, but I won't say necessarily stole particular landscapes, but saw significance in these landscapes that were devalued. It appears to me, just as an observer, that in Latin America and the Caribbean, much more attention is paid to the Maroons and their exploits and their culture than in the United States, which has more than its share of marinage. Right. So much of the work on marinage, as you stated, is focused in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I think one would argue that the culture of marinage is more extensive and steep, right? If we, you know, that we're thinking about various countries in, in the Caribbean. But I, I agree with you. There are ways in which we can say that, right, the Gullah Geechee culture, the culture of marinage, right, is an extended, is the afterlife of kind of marinage, formal marinage in the U.S. And then what I'm arguing is that there's ways that we can kind of foment or incite marinage right now. And that I think there are communities, say in Detroit and Jackson, 
that are engaging in forms of marinage. And I hope that we can speak more on that as well. Well, yeah, let's speak about that. Throughout your piece, we get the impression that you think that there are real, specific, political, organizing lessons to be learned about the current generation of Black Americans and others from the experiences of the Maroons. Most definitely. So if we, if we take the understanding that I, the position that I take, that marinage was not just a practice of the antebellum past, right? Marinage isn't just embedded in one's cultural practices, right? But that it was an actual spatial practice that our ancestors saw that, wow, okay, the swamps, granted, there are alligators and mosquitoes and everything there, but I see that the long arm of capital, the long arm of the capitalist enslaver has not seen value in that space. So then I start to think, in what ways can we apply that spatial imaginary in the present, right? Are there ways that our communities are devalued economically, right? But our communities have used value. So if we take that spatial imaginary that our ancestors had about swamps, about mountains, about woods, and then apply it to our community, say, before a real estate developer comes into our neighborhood and sees economic value, right? There's ways in which we can maybe create a form of urban marinage and I began to think about that as I, I lived in Detroit for a bit doing field work and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi and looking at the ways that black folk, working class black folk have subsisted in these deliberately, right, undervalued cities, major cities for generations, creating a form of marinage, specifically looking at, say, D-Town Farms, right, and the way that they're using public property to create a sustainable food system. Right, looking at the cooperative community of New West Jackson and Jackson, Mississippi, the way they've come together to get devalued property, property that has not, or land that has not been seen to have exchange value yet, and making a cooperative out of that. And so I see those urban spaces as forms of urban marinage. Well, in that kind of sense, then every black rural tobacco road settlement, <laughs> as well as the Harlems and other black urban enclaves all across the country all have some relationship to marinage. Oh, for sure, definitely. And I think what is important is not just the space, right, but it's like how do we begin to revalue or value our own spaces, right? So I think that's, for me, that is really a key kind of political component of marinage. What makes marinage a political practice is the kind of ethic the ethic that we move, that we take to our spaces and the way in which we can reevaluate spaces for me. So that's the political practice. The practice isn't just that, you know, we may have, you know, roadside stands or we have a Harlem, but it's like, how are we cooperatively looking at our community to figure out how can we stave off certain kinds of extractive industries? Well, cooperative appears to be the operative word. Gentrification seems to represent the long arm of the capitalist. In fact, it is a capitalist phenomenon. Indeed. And so thinking about how you know, we talk about gentrification as this global issue, but particularly an issue for Black communities in the U.S., and I try to teach this to my students, right? We're taught that, you know, the goal is to be an individual homeowner, you know, have mine. It's for me to own a, a home and develop equity and whatnot. But for the majority of many communities, but particularly a, a black working class community, that may not be the, the case, particularly because like this long structural history of redlining 
But there's a way that we can, if we come together as a cooperative, even if it's just me and two of my neighbors, put little funds together to get a piece of property, we can do something with that together in a way that I myself may not be able to generate or to get access to some land and stave off this kind of gentrifying process that's happening in many cities in the U.S. Yes, by emphasizing marinage as an historical culture and asset of Black folks, you're bringing something to the contemporary organizing situation that I think has appeal. Uh, People like to connect their current organizing work with the historical legacy as well. And so cooperatives as a kind of maroon activity of liberation that puts a different kind of spin on that kind of politics. Definitely, because I think one of my concerns has been that there's conversation around liberation and freedom, but I don't think the conversation goes far enough to think about where will that freedom take place? Where will our, our liberation take place? Like on what, literally, on what kind of landscape will we be liberated or be free upon in the present tense? And how will we replicate that landmass or that kind of culture on that landmass? How will we protect that landmass? And so I think pulling marinage to say that marinage is not just some old tactic that doesn't apply anymore. Like there's something that we can learn and apply today is is essential for organizing in the moment. But when that landscape that you are trying to claim as a place where freedom is built is also highly valued, newly revalued by the capitalists, are you really still a maroon? I think if we look at, say, I like to speak to the cooperative community in New West Jackson and what they're doing, because there's spouts of development happening in Jackson and their ability to be able to purchase contiguous property for the cooperative, right? So even though they're beginning to get, they may end up get shrouded or surrounded by this kind of individualist capitalist aims, they're still able to replicate themselves, replicate their ethics, their culture in this space that they've able to, were able to get as a collective, right? And I think that is still a form of marinage. Because even if we think about marinage historically, we had individual and collective fugitive enslaved folk who were creating a small way of life outside of the plantation. And so even though the plantocracy existed in massive forms all throughout, say, the Great Dismal Swamp, and the great, in parts of the Great Dismal Swamp, right, certain Africans and indigenous folk were able to create a kind of small sliver of, of freedom and refuge for themselves. Yes, and, and that is important. This what the French call petite marinage. These settlements that were not deep in the swamp or high in the mountains, but right on the outskirts of the plantation environment. And these maroons would come back into the slave quarters to see their folks. They also often conspired with people who were still enslaved for rebellion. So these were near in places of conspiracy and rebellion right next to the strongholds of the slaveocracy. Right. So, you know, and so we're we're having this protracted struggle that we're in, right? And so we're trying to chip away and, and win battles when we can. And I think having these maroon communities in different cities, one, it's inspiring, right? It serves as a model of cooperation, a model of cooperative economics, a model of cooperative living. 
to serve as a model of sacrifice. I think there's a certain clearly a kind of sacrifice that went with along with our ancestors uh, living a marooned life. And I think there's a model of sacrifice that exists in the current context as well. But I think these kinds of sacrifices, cooperative work and economics is needed and, and shift in value as well is needed if we're wanting to move towards a form of kind of quote unquote liberation, quote unquote freedom. Well, clearly, on a basic level, if there is not cooperation and some level of political solidarity among folks who are under the gentrification threat, they'll all be picked off one by one and displaced. Right. And I I don't want to just say that this is a kind of cooperative work that only, say, people who are longstanding members of a community need to engage in, right? And part of writing this is also me looking in the mirror and being like, what kind of practice am I willing to engage in? What kind of sacrifice am I willing to make? Because I think those of us who are doing this writing and this reading on marinage and on liberation and freedom are just as needed or just as required for us to change our, our value systems and our practice as well to engage in processes of marinage that may exist in our cities or could potentially exist. You, of course, are familiar with contemporary politics. You don't just study ancient maroon communities. And I would assume that you're familiar with Maroon Schultz, the political prisoner. Do you have any affinity with that brother? Russell Maroon Schultz, I have not engaged in correspondence with that brother, but I'm familiar with him and his writings, actually. One of the first times I visited Philly, like I was immediately introduced to his work. And so his writing, his life was the inspiration for this work, this kind of ideological work, but also the kind of practice that I think is essential to pair alongside with our ideological work. I want to say that this work is inspired by what a number of Black geographers speak to as a Black spatial imaginary. And so that Black spatial imaginary is ideological in the sense that I'm thinking through Black geographies to write this essay, but it's also something that has happened in the everyday lives, everyday social lives of Black folk. But what's important about Black Spatial Imaginary is that it's fluid enough for me to be able to look to the Zapatistas in Southern Mexico and be like, "Mm, what is significant about their move to the mountains in Southern Mexico to find use value in a mountain that capitalists and extractive industries had not thought of? What is significant about the Viet Cong going underground to, to live in tunnels and as I also speak to what is significant about indigenous Indians in northern regions of the state of India. So I think it was essential for me to think across geopolitical and geographic boundaries and national boundaries, right, to try to reconceive what Marinaris could look like in the present. And I think that's essential for a kind of a Pan-African, an internationalist black politic in the present. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 